Right, I'm going to continue talking uh, on our series, which is uh, about unity. Last time we were looking at unity in 1 Corinthians, and what I was saying is really unity wasn't just Paul's idea, it's God's idea, and he was the one that thought it up right from the beginning of time, right up until the cross, when we were unified back with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an absolutely crucial subject and very much in the heart of God. And uh, we're doing a series of, on unity, not because I think we've got a problem or that there's disunity amongst us. On the contrary, I just think uh, we're experiencing God's blessing in an incredible way and there's an incredible sense of unity amongst us, which is just wonderful, uh, people coming together. But rather because it's the next thing in the book, that's one of the good things about doing expository teaching through a book. You tackle all sorts of different issues. And if you flip a bit further into 1 Corinthians, we're going to be handling some very interesting issues as we go through the rest of the book. So we're doing unity because of that. But also I think there's some kind of prophetic imperative in it. I feel that prophetically, that it's part of what God is doing amongst us. God is building us together. He's shaping us, and he's forming us, and he's making us into the kind of local church that he wants us to be in Solihull. And, you know, unity is the glue that makes this possible. Unity is that which holds us together and keeps us focused on what it is God has called us to do. So what I want to do now is look at what that glue is made of, what it is that unites us as a church, what it is that holds us together. Because as I was saying last time, what holds us together must be more important than what separates us, and what we agree on must be more powerful than what we disagree about. So we better know what those things are. We better know what it is that unifies us, what it is that draws us together. So here's what Paul says. Here's what he thinks in these first few chapters. Some of the things that unify us, bring us together, that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months, I guess. Firstly, the first thing he talks about is our mission. He talks about our mission to preach the gospel. Actually, it's traced throughout the whole book, but just at the beginning there, in one, chapter 1, verse 17, we're going to focus there today. Secondly, the gospel itself is a, a unifying thing. It brings us together, the centrality of the cross. That's in chapter 1 again, verses 18, uh, verse 18, and then through to chapter 2, verse 5. And then there's the wisdom and presence of the Holy Spirit that he talks about in chapter 2. Then there's honouring others for the individual role that they play in building the church in chapter 3. And then leadership. Leadership is a unifying thing too, how we treat leaders, treating them appropriately in chapter 4. But today, I want us to focus on our mission. And we're going to be looking at three things. Number one, the mission that we're on. Secondly, things that distract us from our mission. And thirdly, things that detract from our mission, things that take power away from our mission. So that's what we're going to do today, just three things. So Lord, I just want to pray that you would help us to hear from you, that you would inspire us as we learn about the mission of God, as we learn about the mission that you have for us today as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to read the passage to you uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and starting at verse 10 right the way through to verse 17. It's quite a short passage, but I think it's good to put things in context. First of all then, uh, verse 10. 
I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this, one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. But is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Our mission, and the mission of every church is clear, and it's the same for every church. It was practiced by the disciples when Jesus sent them out in twos. It was encapsulated in the great commission that Jesus gave us. It was carried out by the early church, and it's underlined here by Paul, and that is to preach the gospel. That is the mission of the church today. And that's in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And there's no greater calling, there's no greater purpose for the church than to go into all the world and make disciples. And so the church and each of us, as individual Christians, are called to be missional. We're called to be on mission. We're called to be outward-looking. We're called to be world-focused, always looking for ways that we can go public. That's what we're talking about this year, going public, taking the church to the world, not just waiting for them to come to us. I mean, it's great when people come to us, but we need to find ways of taking the church to them or hopefully helping them to find us. You know, people often wonder, don't they, uh, what am I called to do? You know, what is it that God is leading me into? Well, here you go. This is where you start. Telling Jesus to people. Telling people about Jesus. And this is true of all of us. We are all called to do this. And it's not really a matter of gifting or any particular skill. We are all called to be witnesses. Which is why Paul writes to Pastor Timothy... And he says, Timothy, I want you to do the work of an evangelist. This has really challenged me recently. I'm not an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. It's like Paul saying, look, I know you're a pastor teacher. I know that you're a a, a prophet guy or you're a whatever. But I want you to make this your priority. I want you to make the good news about Jesus your priority. So are you ready to go public, church? Because this is the main thing that the church exists for. Otherwise, Jesus would take us straight to heaven when we're saved. Did you realize that? If he didn't have some reason for us to be here, that's what would have happened. As part of our calling, our commission, is to tell people about Jesus. And this is very important. You know, it's like we've been given 
a miracle cure for the great disease that's killing off humanity. You know, imagine if you had such a cure. Imagine if Alexander Fleming had discovered penicillin and all of the illnesses that it would cure, but he never told anybody except for his immediate family. How would you feel about that? And you know, the gospel is the only known cure for the rot that's destroying our world. People's lives are ravaged by sin and the destructive cancer that it is, destroying everything that they touch. And the cross is God's solution for this cancer that's eating away at our humanity. And we have to tell people about it. And we need to do this boldly and without compromise. I don't know about you, I've just been so moved by some of the things we've seen on the news this week about these young guys, just teenagers, ravaged by sin, deceived by the evil one. How much our world needs to know this message of the gospel. They need to know about Jesus. But you know, so many other things can come in. So many other things can distract us from this mission. They press in on us. They shout for our attention. Anything to just get us off course and divert us from our purpose. And I'm not talking about work now. I'm just talking about within the church things that can distract us from our mission. Because that's what was going on at Corinth. They were distracted by arguments over leaders. Uh, They were disputing doctrines of baptism and repentance. They were getting obsessed with using their spiritual gifts and to play who wants to be the most spiritual and awesome person in the church. That's what they were focused on. That's what had distracted them. And for us today, there there can be all sorts of things. It could be the burden of pastoral care. It can be the latest techniques for church growth, the next church meeting to attend, or even the pursuit of the next suspect revival, which this time surely must lead to world evangelization, which sadly few of them seem to do. Church stuff. Church stuff gets in the way. Church stuff, running church, administrating the church, it can deviate us, it can distract us from the main purpose and mission of preaching the gospel. And we haven't even started on the rest of our lives. And it doesn't really matter what things distract us, because, I mean, some of them are good. Some of them are very good. It's good to care for people. It's good even that the church grows, that we learn how to grow the church. These things are good. But the point is that any of them can have the potential to dominate and to obscure the main purpose of what the church is really about. And that's what we've got to guard against. You know, I think uh, people can get really confused about these kind of things. You can see this sometimes in the way that people make choices about which church to join. You know, there are many of these, what I like to call, consumer Christians moving about. They turn up at your church and they walk in with a kind of a checklist of services that they want you to provide for them. 
Do you do children's work? Yes, yes, we do. Well, what kind of facilities do you have? What kind of program do you do? What kind of facilities do you have for youth? Do you have a qualified counsellor on board? Do you do men's ministry? It's like this checklist that people walk down. In other words, how is your church going to serve me, impress me? This is an interview. We've had people like that visit us. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask serious questions about a church before you consider joining it. But if you're just looking at a church as a consumer, or if you're just looking for a church that can serve your needs, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And I'm afraid I've had to say to some of these people when they've visited us, I'm sorry, but this isn't quite where we're at at the moment. We're kind of a bit busy, and we've got this mission. We're on this mission together. We're not looking for people just to come and sit and be amongst us. There's a lot to do. We want people to get stuck in. We've got a vision. We want to do stuff for Jesus. We want people that come amongst us and and they're prepared to serve and get stuck in, not just to be served. I hope that helps. And it's sad that some of these people haven't come back, but wonderful that many more have come with a completely different attitude and have risen to the challenge of being on a mission together with us. Such a delight yesterday to do an Exploring Jubilee course and just to hear people's stories walking around, how they came to be with us and how they've been impacted by us as a church. Us as a church, they like us. But also they love what we're doing. They love what God is speaking to us and leading us into. And I've just been so impressed with people that have joined us in the last well, a couple, three years, people that have just come in and just got stuck in and have served and have loved and have got hold of our vision. Wonderful. Thank you so much to everybody for that. But this is important. It's important that we as a church have a sense of our purpose and have a sense of our mission. You see, a church that's got a clear sense of mission and direction, a church that's moving forward in the purposes of God, has this amazing effect of drawing people together, drawing people in, uniting them. There's an incredible uniting power about just this, this purpose, this mission. I mean, have you ever walked with a crowd of people that are all going in the same direction? I went to a conference recently, and I was going along, just carried along, yay, surfing with the crowd. And suddenly, it's, oh my goodness, I'm going the wrong way. <laughs> and how difficult it is to sort of turn around and sort of get through the crowd and, sorry, 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 <laughs> this way. But how wonderful to go where everyone's going and to be united in that singular purpose. It's incredibly uniting. You know, we are all about making Jesus famous in Solly Hole. Is that okay? You come in. Do you want to jump in? Jump in to this tide of people that are purposefully serving Jesus in this mission. Being on mission together has a tremendous power to unify people. 
And that's what we want. We want a purposeful people that are unified in mission. Matt Partridge often likes to say, people don't like jumping from a moving bus. <laughs> people don't like jumping off a bus when it's moving. They like to wait for it to slow down and then they jump off. We want to be a church that is going somewhere and is purposeful in the mission of God. That's what we want. And it's important because otherwise you get things like what's going on at Corinth. People start looking around saying, oh, actually, that's the leader for me. I'm for Paul. I'm for Apollos. Or the spiritual ones, I'm for Jesus. They start getting these little camps. People are not being purposeful. They're not being drawn together. Not got that sense of purpose and mission together. They become distracted. But Paul says, look, I didn't come to you to gain a following from you. I didn't come to win a popularity contest. So I didn't even come to baptize people or disciple them. That's other people's job. So this is why I'm here. My primary objective, my apostolic calling, is to keep you focused on the gospel, to unify you for this purpose. And it's still the case. This apostolic message still applies today. We need to get behind the mission of Jesus to reach Solihull and beyond. But there are not only things that can distract us from our mission, there are also things that can detract from our mission. And our mission begins to lose its power. And this is all about the message that we preach, things that detract from our mission. Because, you know, it's all very well to be on a mission together. There are all kinds of mission that we can go on to unify us. I find people interesting that are interested. You know, and I can go almost anywhere, and if I see somebody who's into something, I find them interesting. And even if I'm not interested, we were on the beach a couple of weeks ago, and there was these people going with their metal detectors. I'm not interested in metal detecting, but suddenly I was interested. Why are they doing it? They're on a mission to find treasure on the beach. Have they ever found anything? I wouldn't be seen dead doing it, but... There's something about their mission that draws you. You can be united over going to Alton Towers for the day if you want to. That can be a mission, arranging it all, getting people in touch, contacting. Or my daughter and her teenage girlfriends going to see One Direction a few weeks ago. Wow, I tell you what, there was some passion in that mission. Believe me, the energy and commitment that went into that mission, all the girls came home without a voice the next day because they were screaming so much. A mission, it unifies people. But our mission is not just about being together, but it centers on a very important message the message of the cross. And the cross is where the power of this mission is found. But there are things that can detract from this mission, or as Paul says, there are things that can empty the cross of its power. Verse 17. 
So what are these things? What are the things that can empty the cross of its power? Well, here they are. This is what Paul says. He says it's the interference of human wisdom. It empties the cross of its power. I've got a good idea. Dangerous. Empties the cross of its power. Human wisdom has the effect of diminishing the power of the cross whenever we are tempted to either add or take away anything from this very important message of the gospel. How do we do this? Well, we take away from the gospel when we do things to try and make the message more palatable. Or we try to soften its reality in some way. Now, we can do this unconsciously sometimes because, I mean, who wants to hear about the cross? It's a horrible thing. It's brutal. It raises all sorts of problems and questions when you talk about it. You know, who wants to come to terms with the cruel and ugly truth that it represents about me? Who wants to know about the cross? You know, to, to tell somebody you're sinful in what you do. You're a sinner. And one day you're going to have to stand before God and give account for that sin. It's a hard thing to do. People don't like it. Seeing that increasingly in our society. A nurse wears a cross to work. That's bad enough, it seems. Not allowed to wear a cross to work anymore. Makes me cross. Ah, it makes me cross. Paul says later on that the cross is a stumbling block. And that's true even today. We're going to look at that a bit more next time. But what we do in that situation is we try to soften the blow. We try to make it easier for people to hear. And if we're not careful, the gospel loses its power. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't find ways to make the gospel more accessible to people. And one of the vehicles that we use is Alpha, and we're very committed to that, and we've seen people come to faith through it. But recently, we've been having some conversations about the risk that some people uh, in the church become uh, not converted through these methods, but actually Christianized. They become Christianized, they become culturally adapt, adept at being involved in the church. And so I think sometimes we may have made it too easy for people to become Christians. You know, true conversion requires genuine repentance. And of course, Jesus loves you, and we can talk about him and decide if his message makes sense to us. But in the end, he hates sin. And he commands us all to repent or face judgment. You can't really soften that. We mustn't take away from the gospel and empty the cross of its power. But neither must we add to the gospel. And actually, as I've been thinking about this and reflecting on my own life, I think that we're probably more at risk of this than the other. We're more at risk of adding to the gospel rather than taking it away. Because, you see, adding to the gospel occurs whenever we add to our message in such a way that it takes people beyond what Jesus requires for people to be saved. 
And it's dangerous. This is dangerous because as Tim Keller points out in his commentary on Galatians, when we add anything to the gospel, Paul says it's no gospel at all. Even when we're adding things that are perfectly good, or we think they are, human wisdom says that they are. So let me give you a few examples. First of all, imagine that there's a new Christian that comes into the church. He's been radically saved, but his lifestyle hasn't quite caught up with the fact. And we might say, well, do you know, it's really great that you're saved, but now you need to change the way that you dress, you need to cut your hair, and you need to go to church every week. Adding to the gospel, it's adding to the gospel, it's human wisdom, it might even be good advice. Some people come to Christ in a terrible mess. And some good Christian advice might be just what they need to sort their lives out. Dangerous. It's human wisdom. Even good advice... But not, it, but in no way do these external things affect our salvation or enhance our standing before God. This is no gospel at all, but a whole set of rules that govern the externals of behavior and teach you how to fake it, but it's nothing to do with the heart. We mustn't add rules or demand external conformities to the essential message of the gospel. But perhaps you're too well taught to fall into that. You know, I can't imagine many of us falling into that mistake from what I know of people. You'd never say these kind of things to people, but you might think it. (laughs) But you're more likely to do it to yourself. Because, you know, after you've been a Christian for a few years, there are certain expectations that we have of ourselves, of how well we're doing, or how well we think we should be doing. Anybody? You start to think, I've been a Christian a few years now, I ought to have got this sorted. Just in case you're in any doubt, let me illustrate this. And we're going to come to an end pretty soon after this illustration because I want us to go back into some worship and I want us to stand before God on it. Let me illustrate it to you by comparing two radically different days in your life. The first one is a good day in your life spiritually. You get up the moment that the alarm goes off. You have a fantastic time with God. The Bible comes to life in an amazing way. And when you pray, it's just so easy. And God just speaks to you. And you come out of your prayer time and you feel refreshed and encouraged. And, you know, it just seems like heaven is all around me as I walk today. You walk out to catch the bus. It's there waiting for you. You get on. The bus driver smiles at you. And everybody talks to you. You get to work ahead of time. And as you walk to the office... The sun shines just as you step off the bus. What a wonderful day. Everything just goes better. 
halfway through the morning, your colleague leans over to you and says, I really need to talk. There's something about you, I've noticed it, we need to talk about it. Over lunch, you have the most amazing conversation and you think this friend is on the verge of becoming a Christian and they said they might come to church next Sunday and you think they actually will. What an amazing day, what a fantastic day and surely God is blessing me. It must have been that quiet time I had this morning. This is a good day for you spiritually. Compare this to the second day. This is not a good day for you spiritually. The alarm goes off. You press snooze. You go back to sleep. Horrors, you wake up an hour later to the sound of the dustbin lorry. I mean, what is it about the sound of dustbin lorries that are so distinctive? There's no time to pray or read the Bible. There's hardly enough time to grab a bag of crisps on the way out of the door and they're Aldi crisps. And it's raining. (laughs) The bus is late and crowded, standing room only. As you're pushed together, somebody sneezes on you and you're convinced that you're going to get the flu. You get to work late, the boss is not impressed. Your computer has got a virus and you end up having an argument with IT. Your boss is not impressed again. And so this endless grind of a day goes on. Eventually, you get home that night late, cold and tired and you realise you've got nothing in for dinner. There's not even any milk. And then the doorbell rings. It's your neighbour in tears. Please, I've got to talk. Please help me. And they're really hungry for God. And they think that you're the one person that can help them to find him. Tell me, which of those two very different days would you find that witnessing opportunity with your friend the easiest? Which one would you feel the most confident in? Why? Why is it that we find it harder to believe that God blesses us or will be with us if we've had a spiritually bad day than a spiritually good day? The reality is that whether we've had a spiritually good day or a spiritually bad day, there is nothing that can make us more holy or more acceptable than we already are. We are no more acceptable or capable of being used by God if we've had a good day or a bad day. We still need the gospel. Why do we add to the gospel? Why is it that we get saved and we think that I've now got to perform? Foolish Galatians is what Paul said. We've added to the gospel. We're saved by grace and grace alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Whether we've had a good day and we're just doing great with God, or whether we've had a bad day and we're having a really crummy time at the moment, we're in the same place. We still need to come to the cross. We still need to come to Jesus. And I want to challenge you with that about adding to the gospel because I think we do it and if we do it individually 
then we could be doing it corporately together as a church. And it's something that we need to guard against. I want to talk about that quite a bit more next time, but that's the taster for it. I'm going to talk about the gospel and how that unites us next time. But look, the church is not a building. It's not static and unchanging. We're on the move. And there's a mission that we're on. The church is on a mission which unifies us and motivates us to preach the gospel. And we must do this boldly and without either watering down its message or adding to it. The cross is enough. It's enough to secure our salvation. And there's two challenges that I want to leave you with. The first one is this. We're on a mission. Are you coming? Are you getting stuck in? Are you involved? Are you with us? Are you ready to go public? Because that's the journey that we're on right now. That's what we're talking about. That's what I want to equip us in. Tony Thompson's coming next week. He will help to equip us in this as well. That's the first challenge. The second challenge is do you add to or take away from the gospel? Think about your own life and the way that you treat yourself. Have you lost your joy because you've been adding to the gospel and failing miserably? If you have, I want to suggest, in fact, I want to say, not suggest, you need to repent and come back to Jesus and come to the cross again.